From Eterno, with aplomb, the show about the history, culture, and happenings in the beautiful game. Flying the spaceship solo today, I'm your host, Nima. So excited to welcome a truly special guest whose work on the pitch has definitely inspired us. To kick things off, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, this is Cameron Porter, known for a brief but momentarily spectacular career in, in MLS <laughs> soccer now doing many things off the field, but excited to be here on the show with you, Nima. Thanks for making time, man. Our mutual contact put us in touch. Shout out to Don. I think we met a couple months ago. I was fascinated by your story. And really after our first chat, I couldn't wait to share your story with the world. So let's get into it. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, where you hail from, and uh, I'd love to know how old you were when you first started playing. Yeah, so I'm from the the soccer capital of, of Dayton, Ohio. Um, yes. <laughs> notorious for all the great players coming out of there. I actually wasn't born there, born in North Carolina, but moved there pretty mm. much right after I was born. Started playing probably when I was four or five. I believe it was for my dad's team. I think we were called the Purple People Eaters. We wore a lot of purple and we ate a lot of orange slices. And that's about all I really remember from those exceptional times. Growing up, I, I kind of attended actually a, a small school. I think in elementary school, we were a class of 18. And by the time we graduated high school, we were a class of 45. And it was always an interesting journey kind of playing sports at a school where sports were never the biggest thing. So it was a life of kind of finding outlets and ways to, to play the game in an area where there were a surprisingly high number of talented athletes in the, in the field. I'm really curious how your experience was going through the system. So you started playing at four or five, but at what point were you really interested in playing at a higher level? And what was mm -hmm. that journey like? Yeah, I think it was interesting. I'd say a lot of my soccer journey has been more pull than push. I was not the kid growing up who knew I was aspiring to be a professional soccer player. I, I always enjoyed soccer. I remember the first time at a tournament, opening a package of Manchester United soccer cards, and kind of being fascinated with what was going on in the world, but never really saw myself doing that. It wasn't until I think a random random tournament, honestly, where I was still playing rec soccer that a coach and a friend who were playing on another team kind of saw me and came over and said, you should really, mm -hmm. really consider playing at a club level, transitioning to more of a travel team. How old were you when this happened? I, I, I was only like 11 or 12. Um, wow. So rel relatively late in the soccer sense of things, especially now when you see players signing professional contracts at yeah. 15. So think, things have really changed. Back, yeah, because back then there was actually no development league. Like the men's development league, I believe has only been around for nine or ten years and women's only for two exactly exactly so when i was in high school i started becoming aware that soccer was something i could pursue i, I remember mm -hmm. receiving my first email from a college coach i believe it was emory mm -hmm. and and taking it to my mom and being like do you do you think i can go to college to play soccer she's That's like amazing. you know she's like, you know what we should we should go talk to the college counselor on this yeah. and, <laughs> and kind of discovering the whole process and ncaa regulations 
I mean, I mean, genuinely, it was it was something of kind of an, an uncovering where one serendipitous event led to another. I think I even tried out for the Columbus Crew Academy when it was first opening, and that would have been wow. my sophomore or junior year of high school. Wow. And I actually, I don't even think I made the team, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I was playing in Cincinnati for for a club there, which was affiliated with the crew, but not, not the academy itself. And then by the time my junior year kind of wrapped up, I was, I was already committed to play for Princeton and really didn't, at that time, the academies and ODP were roughly on par and I was always participating in the ODP system. So I didn't really see the necessity in, in getting uh, shut out again from the academy program. Right. Yeah. And, and honestly, like ending up at Princeton was something that I was so, so excited by just the fact that I could have the opportunity to play division one soccer at such an academic right. institution. I, That's incredible i honestly was just excited to show up there and kind of be a part of a team it was beyond my expectations to think that that was a place where i would start consistently play and then ultimately be a platform for playing in the pros that's incredible and in your last year was 2014 with princeton yes that that's correct and that was uh that was the year uh, you were the eastern college athletic conference offensive play of the year right yes it, yes it was it it's a it's a funny process and I think to even hammer home the point, just how surprising it was kind of receiving those accolades. I think I ultimately went on to like lead the NCAA and scoring that summer before I, I didn't really train to play soccer. I had worked, oh, at a, wow. I had worked on a consulting firm with a few friends and the four of us were kind of partners in the business and we were hiring mm-hmm. for other students. And for all intents and purposes, we thought after graduation, this is what we were going to go do full time. And, and that's what my, wow. ultimately my three friends went and did. And so that summer we, I was working full time kind of on this company and as you know when you're, you're building a business like you don't you don't have much time for anything nope. else i think my my version of training was i'd try to wake up an hour before everyone else hit an espresso and go for like a four or five mile run but <laughs> to, to say i touched a ball would be an overstatement i think a few times when we threw quote-unquote company barbecues there was a soccer ball yeah. there but but that was amazing. honestly about it and Cameron, that's it, amazing yeah and and that's what i mean so much of this i think I may be understating the amount of training I did in my in my youth, but it was something of a surprise to have the opportunities I did have. But I felt yeah. very fortunate and and willing to kind of capitalize on them when they did come about. Definitely. Looking at some of the highlights from your career, you were always a great finisher. And I think your your talent ultimately came through and that's why you were selected to be where you were. So one thing that when we first met, I didn't know, and now I'm so excited to ask you, you worked with Coach Marsh, right? Yes, I did. I mean <laughs> <laughs> What's funny about about Jesse Marsh and well Princeton overall is that I, not many people know he went there and there's kind of a long lineage of Princeton coaches, especially as they mm-hmm. relate to the, the U.S. national team, really starting with with Bob Bradley and um, mm-hmm. Bob Bradley being Jesse's coach. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Af- after Jesse Marsh took the job at Montreal Impact to be the one to get that MLS team up and running, he, yes. he had a couple seasons there and ultimately they, they parted ways. Um, like many coaches do, and kind of mm-hmm. in the interim of figuring out what he wanted to do next, he actually came back to Princeton and coached as an, uh, a volunteer, almost assistant coach Amazing. Uh, for my junior and senior year. And it was so fortuitous in that he brings a level of passion for the game that I I think few have really ever experienced, and it's really hard yeah. to describe. I think that he is someone that genuinely has the potential to kind of be the talisman for the U.S. soccer program going forward. I would love that more than anything. <laughs> and I, I don't think I'm alone in saying that. And I, and I think what what is so amazing about Jesse is that he knows that good things take time. 
I think if you look at the choices he's made in his career, he's never been hasty to do the thing that makes the most money. He's always made sure to take his time and put himself in positions where he has the highest opportunity to learn and grow. And because he's continued to do that, I think he's going to continue to grow into one of the, the best coaches to come out of the American system. I mean, he's what he's doing with Red Bull Salzburg right now in Europe is just incredible. And that only speaks to all the points that you just brought up. And I really do hope someday he gets a crack at the national job because I think he would be amazing in that capacity. So, if you take one thing away from the show, you have to see Cameron's goal. This one particular <laughs> goal from March 3rd, 2015, 89 minutes on the clock, CONCACAF Champions League quarterfinals. I'll shut the fuck up and let you tell the rest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I got drafted into the Montreal Impact, and so at the time, this was 2015, so just following that exceptional season in, in college soccer, we were a part of the Champions League. And so much of our preseason preparation put us in Mexico City, actually. And honestly, I was just excited to be there, much like in college, to be a part of a team playing at that level, just trying to honestly get my legs underneath myself. We played our, our first game in Pachuca. I was fortunate enough to be a part of the 18. I got, I think, 15 minutes of play at the end. I think the advice Frank Klopas, the coach at the time, gave me when I was going on the field was, look, you're young. All I want you to do is run. Just just run <laughs> and stop the team. It was it was 2-2. Two, two. We were away, so it was two aggregate, two goals, two away goals. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really good position coming home to Montreal for the, the second leg of the, the Champions League quarterfinal mm-hmm. matchup. Uh, so we came back to Montreal and on the date you, you just mentioned, and we were playing in Olympic Stadium, which for those who haven't been there in Montreal is a 1970s concrete dome that overlooks the city. It's a pretty special stadium. It's old but loud and it was absolutely packed. 40,000 fans there. And as I walked on that field for warm-ups, I, th- I thought the highlight was honestly just <laughs> the opportunity to be in front of this many people. The just yeah. the moment, the energy, that was special enough. And I wasn't starting the game. We played competitively up until the 81st minute, I believe. And unfortunately, Laurent Simon, our, our designated player at the time, pulled someone down in the box and committed a foul and mm-hmm. we gave up gave up a PK to go down 1-0 which ultimately would mean that we would be out of the tournament. I was at that point not really thinking I would even make it into the game. We had already used one forward substitution. Jack McInerney had, had already gone in. So I was pretty sure I wasn't going to get on the field. But a few minutes ticked by and once again Frank Klopas called me up. <laughs> he he gave me a similar piece of advice with uh, another caveat. He said, "Look, get out there and run until you score." Yeah. And and so that that was honestly the advice I had going onto the field and as the minutes ticked by, the game got frenetic got spread out. They're tired. They had traveled a long distance. They were in on goal and I think it was Donnie Toya made a good tackle. Played the ball out to Callum Malice just mm. around the top of the box. He takes a few dribbles and I think he hammers a ball 60 yards mm-hmm. downfield to me on the, the left wing. I end up cutting across my defender collecting the ball with my chest 
fortunate it bounces in front of me. The defender takes a stumble. The goalie's rushing outwards, and I poke it right between the goalie's legs and proceed to do what is the most embarrassing celebration I've ever done in my entire life <laughs> before <laughs> before my teammates do the favor of, of tackling me. But it, needless to say, it was an exceptional moment in front of all these fans yeah. who, who erupted. It's the very last minute of the game. Their players from the bench have run across the field. We're all in a dog pile. And it was quite literally the last kick. When we finally, the chaos subdued and we got settled and the teams got back in position. The other team kicked the ball and the ref blew the whistle. That was absolute pandemonium. Probably the, the highlight at that moment was the assistant coach, Mauro Biello at the time, walking over mm-hmm. to me and saying, look, careers are made of moments like this. Always remember this. That's so and sweet. And so that was, it was a pretty special time. And I think always looking back, I... Although I had a very short career, I was fortunate enough to have a career filled with, honestly, all the highs and lows you could expect from soccer, from the biggest yeah. injuries to winning championships to big goals. And, yeah. and, and, that's, and that's, what you, that's what you really look for. For our listeners, first of all, we're definitely linking to this goal. And Cameron's being very modest about his finish. He definitely finished with a plum. Uh, <laughs> the way you took the ball down on your chest, you shrugged off the defender. You say he slipped, man. I, you know, I think you were you were working it, and <laughs> that was a season finish. That's not that was a beautiful finish. Honestly, watching the celebrations. I mean, I know you're alive now, but I was worried watching it. I'm like, is he? <laughs> no, I think I think if you I think if you watch the dog pile, you see both me and Callum Malice coming out of there. I think Callum is literally dragging his body out, and then I'm like getting up from it. I'm quite disheveled. I'm like, oh my gosh, what has just happened? I feel like I have the wind knocked out of me. Um, Yeah. Honestly, I'm sure you did. The ref did us a favor by ending the game right there because (laughs) (laughs) the celebration took more out of me than all the playing I had done before that. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and this is, I mean, to put this in context, Pachuca is a 117 year old club from Mexico. They've won the CONCACAF Champions League five times. This is a massive club. And this was a huge, huge win at the time, of course. And then you all went to the, to the semis. You played in a Legends game recently, no? Yes, I did in Montreal. Just tell me about who was on the pitch. Drogba was on the pitch was probably the highlight on, on our end. And then we were going up against kind of a Brazilian national team of sorts that include the likes of Cafu, and Rivaldo, oh, and they were coached God. by Dunga. I was actually oh, playing, wow. DDA was playing center forward, and so I was playing left wing, which meant it was me and Kafu. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm telling you, that man at 48 could still play. Oh, <laughs> he, wow. I'm not even surprised. It was, it was unbelievable. And I was, I was chatting with DDA in the locker room after the game, and he's like, yeah, you have no idea what that guy was like in his prime. He could, he could just run, just run, 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 run. And yeah, it was a fun game. I mean, honestly, I was watching the highlights afterwards and it's funny to see how you think it's going so fast out there. And then you realize just yeah. how slow the ball is moving. <laughs> uh, but it, but it, was, it was fun to be out there. I mean, honestly, that was like the first time I had played 11 v 11 really since stopping. Mostly because wow. I was just, my, I never knew if my body could really handle it again after kind of do, doing both legs, but I'm glad I did it. It was fun to play in front of the family and the fans there and and, and get to play, honestly, with such kind of high-quality players at whatever age. Yeah, I bet. I bet that has to be fun. I got to ask you, what in the world was it like to be in the same dressing room as, oh, my fucking God, DDA Drogba? <laughs> I mean, it's one of those moments when he walked into the dressing room and I was just reflecting on all the time that I had played as Chelsea in FIFA. And I, I just thought, I was like, I cannot believe 
this person is is on my team and as in real life as, as yeah as as big as as big as he looks on tv or if you've ever seen him live when you're with him on the field he mm. he is like truly a physical specimen and mm. beyond that he just has an incredible intuition for the game what what he could do with a ball was was incredible and i feel very fortunate to have had some time playing with him and learning from him i wish i had the pleasure of doing it when he was in his prime because i can sure. only only imagine just what it was like to go up against him and better yet he, he was a great guy and at the time when he initially got there i had just blown out my knee and, and he was kind enough to kind of let me work with his personal trainer that he kind of had wow. brought with him from club to club and i think a lot of people don't know just like once you get to the highest level i mean not even the professional level but the level of a right. player like dda Drugba, they often have their own own personal staffs and medical staffs yeah, that, that work with them because you really you really can't perform for that many games in a row without so much dedication and effort off the field so it was really just cool to get that that exposure a really special thing yeah that's i mean that's <laughs> i would almost give anything just to be in a room with him and just shake his hand that's amazing um, yeah and i think many people would and like i think <laughs> i think it was kind of on us and all of us in that locker room at the time to just take advantage of it and i think People can say what they want about the MLS and the people they choose to, to sign to these large contracts and whether or not it's the most efficacious way to kind of improve the league in the long run. But there is something special to bringing kind of world-class champions into a locker room and passing that knowledge down, if not to the veterans on the team, but to the young kids that they're signing because oh. it, it gives them something aspirational. And there really is some things about the game that you can't teach until you learn it from someone who's, who's kind of been there at the highest levels. And I think that I think that's that's important. Yeah, 10,000%. I generally share your optimistic view. Net, net, it's a positive that people like DDA Drogba and Ashley Cole and David Villa and David Beckham and Zlatan and Rooney, Kaka, all these people come and play. That's incredible. And you see the level being lifted. It's just, you have to take the long view. You can't just say, okay, this goal, whatever. It wouldn't have happened if it was mm -hmm. in the area de Vise or whatever. Yes. Um, and it's and it's not to say that there, there aren't trade-offs. Like, sure. yes, yes, you could sign more players to higher contracts and potentially bring more American talent in. But I think there's, <laughs> it's a multifactorial optimization problem. And it's hard to figure out how you balance short-term gains in a league trying to reach profitability with the development of the American soccer system overall. And honestly, I think that the MLS has done a pretty, pretty exceptional job of kind of towing that line overall. And at yeah. the very least, they're getting close to creating a sustainable and an important league kind of on the American sports scene. I completely agree. And this actually leads into sort of what I wanted us to talk about next, which is I'd love to get your overall take on game in the U.S. And however you want to structure it, if you want to talk about lower divisions, your own experience coming, you know, through going to college and pros, I'd just love to get your take on where you think U.S. soccer could be in, say, five years or at least mm -hmm. by 2026. I think that the way I would frame it is I'll compare the old system, so pre-development academy to kind of the new system where the development yes. academy is kind of more well-established and maybe a few of the, the pros and cons I, I see of each and hopefully that can frame up our, our conversation. I think one of the biggest things that I had because I grew up in the pre-DA world, DA being development academy, mm -hmm. was that the college option was the focus. And... If you just look at the numbers for the number of kids who are going to go pro, 
the vast, vast, vast majority should be going to college and using soccer to get an education. And because the system was set up to push players through college, we ended up with more people getting educations from better institutions. And I, I, I still believe that an education is also positive on the field. I think that it creates more well-rounded individuals. That being said, there is benefits from the focus that the DA has brought into the system. It's trying to kind of bring a consistent philosophy down from U.S. soccer to the teams mm-hmm. that a player can learn and focus on while aspiring to get to the higher level. I think where it crosses a line that, that could be dangerous overall is that the DA is ultimately selling the dream that you're going to be playing at this level. And right. even if you're a part of that academy from the age of 13, I'm honestly not even sure at what age they, they start now, the odds that you ever make it into the first team or even sign a professional contract are incredibly low. And yeah. I think that does a disservice to to many of the individuals in order to kind of maximize the upside from the few that would benefit from it. And I think what I would hope from the program overall is that eventually there becomes a way to balance the developmental academy with the college system so that we're not sacrificing one for the other and that along with kind of the development of the usl1 usl2 and all these tiers and reserve systems we can we can find the right set of options so that we're making sure players develop at the right pace and still have access to the educational upside that exists because they're playing in america yes i mean this is a constant topic that i talk to with our guests and really off the microphone with whoever I come across, which is how viable really is it for somebody to make a living, even as a pro still today, right? Mm-hmm. Not everybody in the league is Lachlan. Yeah. And I think it's just going to take more time. We recently met with a gentleman from U.S. Soccer, the Federation, and I actually came out of it super hopeful. And a part of me going into it, I was skeptical, but you know, we ended up talking for two hours. We were only mm-hmm. scheduled for an hour. We talked for two. We really connected. And I felt like the stuff that they're actually working on, especially at the development level, it should pay off in the long run. And we're Mm -hmm. seeing small pockets of it already. The fact that we have players like the Alex Morgans of the world and the Christian Pulisics, I mean, we didn't really have these types of players, I don't know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, no disrespect to anyone, but these folks are just at the age they're at and at the level they're playing, they came through our system, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that leaves me really hopeful. And we've had now several decades of team builders, a gentleman like Peter Wilt, he's built seven teams in the United States, men's, women's, indoor, outdoor. And now he, he actually recently joined the USL headquarters. So I mean, like somebody like him to be in the building now, that makes me just hopeful about US soccer, you know, underscore US soccer. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to that. And and, and talking about that gentleman, like, the U.S. is still in a place where we don't have generational knowledge and institutional mm-hmm. knowledge being passed down. Um, this tacit knowledge kind of being infused into our, our youth and we're largely reliant on one-off exceptions to the rules still where it's Christian Pulisic or Alex Morgan. Yeah. But hopefully we can progressively get to the point where that's a much more consistent process and learn from what worked from them and pass it down to the next set of kids. And what makes me kind of optimistic about the path the MLS has pursued is that they've really focused kind of on the long term viability of this league and and ultimately what we need is a sustainable professional ecosystem to support talent development in the united states and i think it's it's hopeful that if we can do that on the men's side can we kind of pass those down onto the women's side and support a program that's already incredibly successful at the international level 
but bring mm-hmm. it kind of to the forefront on a, a national level for the for the pros. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing some homework on the pay gap. Mm-hmm. And at some point, we're going to do a full-fledged episode on it. We're getting feedback from many different people in the system. And we just need to invest more dollars into the women's game. On the men's side, the investment has been there. You know, if there's an area that has been underdeveloped, then we ought to go and develop it, especially if they're performing. That just seems like a no-brainer. And it's nice to see... Ultimately, it comes down to butts in the seats and people buying jerseys and the games becoming more available. You know, Mm -hmm. clubs, that's how they make their money. It's very nice to see, you know, this news just came out the other week. Louisville just got NWSL team. So the league's expanding. That's wonderful to see that there are, you know, ultimately owners that are, and, and the reality of U.S. soccer is as an owner, you might lose money for five to seven years um, mm-hmm. because you're investing in the future. And we need those types of people who are willing to invest and yeah. elevate the game. And I think we'll get there. We're seeing signs. So I'm hopeful. Yeah. I mean, I think what we need to kind of aspire to almost is the status that is conferred by owning an NFL or an NBA team, because what that brings to an ownership group is that we want to own this regardless of the profit and loss statement. We want to, we want to take care of this institution because it brings value to our communities, to society and supports this national program. And, and I think that the MLS teams are getting there. On the women's side, I think we still have a ways to go. But it, luckily, we have this national program that can kind of pull things forward and show what's possible. And literally, just in terms of like a return on invested capital, how little money can go into that program and what results can be yielded. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as we're recording this, NWSL final wrapped up today. Unfortunately, my beloved Chicago Red Stars lost, but, you know, we'll live. <laughs> So moving on to sort of the last section of our show, it's a lightning round of questions. I'm going to just bounce a question to you. Just fire off the first thing that comes to your mind. Cool. (laughs) All right, let's do it. Let's go. Who's your favorite player right now? Christian Pulisic. That hat trick was unbelievable. (laughs) Oh my God. That first goal was so nice. Uh, I was was so excited. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Who's your second favorite player? Oh, I like Pogba a lot, honestly. I know he, he looks, no, I know. <laughs> he looks, he looks, sometimes he looks lackadaisical out there, but there's something effortless about his game. Sometimes when he's passing the ball, he sees things that no one else is seeing. And I mean, a very little bit of kind of nod to like what Paul Scholes was doing back in the day. And I mean, <sighs> hopefully if, if Pogba ever really got to that level, it'd be <laughs> It would be amazing, but um, that that yeah. that that makes me excited. It's just a possibility. Who's your least favorite player right now? Wow, least favorite <laughs> player. Oh, this actually, 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 no, 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 Fred. Yeah, Fred, yeah. It, it has to be Fred. <laughs> I that man, that man looks lost. I don't know what's happened since he's gotten to Man U. I mean, granted, I, I don't know if it's Man U itself right now, but him sure. and Sanchez. Something's going on where we're, we're spending big money for players who just don't have a GPS out on the field because they, <laughs> they, they are just roaming out there. Okay, I know you're a United fan, so I'm curious to know what team is your mortal enemy? Team as the mortal enemy? <laughs> Tot- Tottenham. Tottenham. Because oh, I wow, do, okay. Well, mostly this is, this is just selfish because I don't, I don't want them to kind of steal our spot in the top four while we're struggling. <laughs> I love that. No, I love the strategy. I get yeah. I mean, yeah. they're too they're too fringe right now and I need them to stay there. <laughs> Proper hooligan. I like yeah. that. 
who's who's your favorite player all time? If you had to pick one, I mean, I know that's hard, but I mean, Ronaldo has to be up there. I spent I spent so much time when I was younger just watching his highlights, literally just trying to kick a ball like him, try to run like him, all these things. And yeah, it'd be so disingenuous for me to say anyone else, just because I think if there was a metric of mo- most video watched on any one player, it would have it would have to be him. That's and yeah, I enjoyed watching his documentary as as much as it might have been. Taylor picked to tell the story it wanted to tell. I, I like the one that that hard work can get you where you want to be. And it seems to be part of his story. So that resonates. Love that. If you could suit up for a team today, which one would it be? And what, uh, where would you want to play if you could pick your own spot? And what number would you wear? Let's see. I mean, honestly, like <laughs> I would play number nine for Liverpool. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I mean, I just think like Mane, solid they they just feed for me know the ball in such good positions and i mean granted i don't think i had the abilities of Firmino to do what he does on the <laughs> ball in terms of getting people in but there's just there's something special about the the way those three play together right now and and i would love to kind of slot in at, at center forward and kind of be a part of that so wait who do you knock out though i feel like i i have to knock Firmino out just because i can't hope to replicate the other two skills <laughs> Oh, no, I hear you. I mean, I wouldn't even be in the conversation. Like, <laughs> guys, do what you do. <laughs> that trio, they're incredible. It's so fun to watch them. Although, although I, would, I would totally need to, to call up Jurgen Klopp and, and ask where he gets his teeth done because I would totally be out of place. <laughs> Replacing oh for me now. Cameron. Thank you for everything you've given the game and thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you for taking the time, Nima. One love.